happy Labor Day weekend. You having fun yet? Who's happy there's no school tomorrow? Yeah, okay. Just checking. Who has to work tomorrow? Say la vie. Sorry, the rest of us will have fun, and that'll be one less person in our way. Oh, just kidding. That's horrible. Who would say such a thing? Oh, well. Hey, we're excited. Two reasons in reverse order of importance. Hey, did you know football season is back? We, like me, I don't know if the rest of the family is excited, but this we is very excited. I've watched some football. I have not finished watching the Alabama-Wisconsin game. So please contain your enthusiasm and don't spoil the ending. But just about everything else is good. Really, the real reason we're excited is after a couple weeks, girl child is home. Yay! So uh, mostly that. Um, I've even put off watching football because she was home. Really crazy. It's just awful all around. Hey, last week we started a series talking about the prophet Elisha in the Old Testament. We introduced Elisha uh, back in First uh, Kings and saw his kind of first time he shows up where um, Elijah the prophet throws his mantle on him and Elisha decides to burn the plows and has no safety net. He's going to go full bore after Elijah to be his apprentice and one day to take over that prophetic role. A lot of you are probably wondering, why in the world would you pick a prophet like Elisha? And if you read ahead at all, you might know. But let me tell you, here's why you need to know about this prophet Elisha. Shortly after his ministry starts, this is several years after Elijah throws that mantle over him, uh, it seems like some young kids were making fun of Elisha. Yes, I feel your pain, brother. The particular issue was apparently Elisha. Missing some hair up there. And they were calling him Baldy. So let this be a lesson to you. The prophet of God, Elisha, heard these guys making fun of him. Called down the judgment of God upon them. And bears came out of the woods and ate them alive. It was awesome. No, that doesn't sound awesome, does it? But but that's what happened. That's in the Bible. Can you believe that thing was in the Bible? I don't understand that. Except, you know, just, just know this. Never call somebody baldy unless they're a little faith kind of person. If you don't know, if they might be a big faith person, if there's any bears nearby... I guess you're safe down here in Key Largo. Not many bears hanging out. If only iguanas could attack like that. No. Nonetheless, so that, that's Elijah. One of the first introductions we get to this guy after he started his ministry, that's one of the things that he does. That is not the topic of the sermon today, aren't you relieved? Um, but we're going to look at something that happens shortly thereafter. If you have your Bibles, uh, we're going to be in 2 Kings chapter 3. There's some Bibles on the racks underneath the seats as well as we're going to throw the, the verses up here on the, uh, on the screen. It seems like today being Labor Day, it would be a great day to talk about a Bible story that concerns digging dishes, ditches. And so that's what we're going to find happens in Scripture. This 
account in uh, 2 Kings chapter 3 is where Elisha the prophet puts people to work. And, and we want to learn about this. We, we talked last week about the real reason uh, we wanted to look at Elisha. And it's not about, um, you know, making fun of bald people, although that's a fun side act. But it's really the fact that we see in Elisha's life and ministry an individual of great faith. And we're going to see some of that today in this, in this passage, some lessons about faith we can learn. We live in a world um, that is increasingly um, seeming to move further and further and further away from God. And if we as God's people are going to live out what it means to be his people, to be followers of Christ in this world, we need to be people of faith. We need to be people of great faith. Not only that, but the Bible itself tells us without faith, it is impossible to please God. So we need to be people who have a growing, lively, vibrant faith. And Elisha was that kind of person. And we see it highlighted throughout his ministry. We're going to look at 2 Kings, as I said, chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 9. And it tells us this in 2 Kings 3, verse 9. So the king of Israel set out with the king of Judah and the king of Edom. After a roundabout march of seven days, the army had no more water for themselves or for the animals with them. So here we see this alliance of three kings that are going to go out to war, particularly they're going to go out to war against Moab. And they think this is going to be a slam dunk. We've got a divided kingdom, Israel and Judah, and Edom, which is sort of a, a side kingdom that has some allegiance to them coming along. These three kings are going to go to war against Moab, a common enemy, and they think this is going to be easy. They're going to go out there. They're going to wipe them out. They're going to do what needs to be done. But we see in this few verses, there's a problem. As they're marching for seven days, they have a very fundamental problem. No water. It's like they're from California or something. I don't know. Hey, just saying, isn't that where the drought is? Is that what, Did it change at all? Okay, good, because I don't want to be, you know, a dated reference. But, you know, that's the problem. There's no water. They don't have water for them. They don't have water for their animals. If you've looked at maps of Israel, or you're, you're familiar with that part of the world, uh, there's some rather arid places there, some pretty dry places there. It's, it's hot. It's not exactly conducive to going without water. And so this group of three kings going to battle are in a bit of a pickle. That's the biblical Hebrew term. What, exclaimed the king of Israel, has the Lord called us three kings together only to hand us over to Moab? But Jehoshaphat asked, is there no prophet of the Lord here? That we may follow. Good question, don't you think? Is there no prophet of the Lord here? Well, I lost my place. That we may inquire of the Lord through him. Interesting they would think that in that day and time, the prophets were the ones who, who spoke the word of God. When you wanted to know what God was thinking or what God was up to, you inquired of a prophet. And so these three kings did just that in this time of crisis. What you may not know is that none of these three kings were particularly followers of God in an ongoing way. They weren't horrible kings, but all of them had their issues. Um, we hear the king of Israel, it says, Jehoshaphat, he is a king, and the scriptures say positive things that he followed in the footsteps of his, of his father Asa and did what was pleasing in the Lord, except for one thing, one rather important thing. He didn't tear down the high places. Those were the things that... Um, had the idols to other gods. So even though he himself seemed to be faithful, he kind of had that, he didn't want to ruffle feathers too much. He didn't want to upset the people that had these different things they like to worship in different ways they like to do. So he didn't tear those down. He kind of let those go, but he tried to do what was right. 
Um, we, we have here the king that, that we're um, looking at, Jehoram. He continued, it says, in the sin of one of his fathers, where he, uh, though had his issues again, it went back to idolatry. He tore down one of the idols. That was one of the things that he did. Um, actually, the idol's name was one that you might have heard. You say, Beelzebub, it's Beelzebub, that prophet Baal, or that god Baal we talked about last week. He tore down some of those idols, but he left all the other ones there. So, you know, it's kind of like, okay, maybe sort of kind of, okay, not too horrible, but nonetheless, not kind of all out following God, not all out into what God wants them to do. And so they, they, they need the prophet to come along to kind of boost them up a little bit. Notice it goes on and it says, An officer of the king of Israel answered, Elisha, son of, Shaph- son of Shaphat, is here. He used to pour water on the hands of Elijah. So we know, they know that Elijah was the former prophet, did some great things. Elisha's the new prophet. He was his apprentice. And particularly when you need water, a guy that knows Elijah might be important. Because if you remember back a few years prior to this, there was a drought in Israel. It's connected to that showdown on Mount Carmel between the prophets of Baal and Elijah, the prophet of God. And after that, Elijah prayed for rain, and he saw in the distance the cloud the size of a hand, and he took off running, and just the rain came after that long drought. And so here they're thinking, this is the kind of guy we need. We need somebody who has a connection to the rainmaker, who has a connection that can possibly bring us rain. And that's typically what we would expect In the Old Testament, you call the prophet, but if we're honest with ourselves, aren't we sometimes the same way? We're kind of going about our life, we're doing things, we're kind of okay, nothing's really too bad, nothing's really too good. We're not necessarily all out in our faith for God. Maybe there's a few high places left around, a few things that we know we should deal with, but everything's okay, and then we hit trouble. Then something happens, and all of a sudden, in that moment, we're desperate for God to show up. We, we want to pull out all the stops. We want to go and do whatever we can and think whatever we can think to somehow have God show up and answer the problem that we found ourselves into. These kings illustrate perfectly what we often do, and we want that miracle worker. We want that, that person. We want that thing that should come in and and change it. Some of this behaviors, we think, if I just maybe pray more, if I just read my Bible more, if I just give more when the offering plate goes by at church, or if I just go to church, or whatever the case may be, we have all these things. We think if we just get there, do that, somehow God's going to answer. And it doesn't always work out the way we want, but nonetheless, we see that common pattern in the human experience. These kings did exactly what you and I often do. They want the prophet of God to come in and save the day. So, next verse tells us what did they do. Jehoshaphat said, the word of the Lord is with him. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to him. Elisha said to the king of Israel, what do we have to do with each other? Go to the prophets of your father and the prophets of your mother. Interesting response. Elisha seemed to have learned a little bit from his mentor, Elijah. He's a little sassy. How many parents like it when your kids are sassy? How many of you thought, I want to raise my kid to be a sass now? How many of us parents sometimes like to be sassy? 
with our kids. Isn't that fun? Kids don't pay attention to this. You know, I mean, there's something. Am I allowed to say this in church? There's something somewhat satisfying of a real sassy comeback at times, isn't there? Even though it might be sinful, it might not be the right thing to do. There's something satisfying when you come up with that perfect response, right? Now, Elijah, as we saw last week, was a little bit of a snark. We, we looked at that episode on the, the, the showdown on Mount Carmel. Remember I told you about that. If you weren't here last week, you're probably familiar with that episode where all these prophets of Baal and Asherah come, and they're going to call upon their God to send fire on the sacrifice, and, and that's the contest. Whichever God answers by fire, either Baal and the false gods or the one true God of Israel, whoever answers by fire, that's the real God. And the prophets of Baal go first, and as they're doing their thing, as they're getting more and more excited and more and more desperate, and they're pulling out some crazy things like cutting themselves, Elijah starts needling them a little bit. My favorite insult, I used it last week, I think it's good. He asked them, what's wrong? Isn't, is your God on the toilet? Now that's, that's a little snarky. That's a little sassy. That's kind of twisting it in there. But that's what he said. It's in the Bible. I didn't make that up. Bears on kids that make fun of bald people. And God's, it's in, it's, you should read your Bible. You'd be amazed what's in there. Amazed. Nonetheless, that's it. So here is my interpretation of Elijah's response. Your mama's a prophet. That's what I get out of that, don't you? Okay, maybe not. It brings the mama into it. Why don't you go to your mama? Why don't you go to your daddy? I thought they were prophets. Come on, ask them. Why are you coming to me? It's a little, a little sassy, a little snarky. But nonetheless, that's what, what he says. He's, he's challenging them. He's confronting them with the fact that they, like us, often wait until we're in a crisis, wait until we've done everything we can do to then say, okay, God, would you bail me out? Sometimes when we've done all we can do to get in the mess, we finally come back and say, God, can you bail me out? Elijah's, Elisha is reminding them that's what they've done. That's what got them into this place to start with. It goes on and tells us in the passage, No, the king of Israel answers, it, it, because it was the Lord who called us three kings together to hand us over to Moab. To Moab. So now the king's like, Getting also might be a little defensive. It's like, so what's going on here? Aren't your parents prophets? Can't you go to your mom? No, it's because the Lord did this to us. He put us in this mess, and he is going to leave us hanging. Interesting thing. That's another pattern in Israel, by the way. Remember, as Moses uh, leads the children of Israel out, and they're in the desert, and they're bounded by the Red Sea and the other mountains around, what do the people start to say? God brought us all the way out here just to kill us. And then when they get across the Red Sea miraculously and get into the promised land, now there's no food. What do they say? God brought us all the way out here just to kill us. And then when they're out across the Red Sea, miraculously parted, and they're in the land, and manna has been given miraculously, but there's no water. What do they say? This should be easy by now. Go ahead, on three, one, two, three. What do they say? God brought us out here to kill us. It's all God's fault. That's, a, that's an old excuse. 
that whole Garden of Eden thing you may have heard about. Adam, Eve, fruit, don't eat the fruit. Serpent comes to Eve, says, eat that fruit. She eats the fruit. God shows up. They're hiding, confronts them about it. What's going on? What does Eve say? Excuse me, what does Adam say? The woman you gave me. Y'all knew that really well. I noticed those were all bass voices that answered, too. Maybe that's the problem. No, the woman you gave me. So it's not just Eve's fault, God. It's really your fault. You gave her to me. If you wouldn't have given her to me, I wouldn't be in this mess, God. It's all on you. How often when we find ourselves in crisis do we want to turn it around and somehow get out of the way, take the blame or the heat off ourselves, and even somehow think if we can just convince God it's really on him, he's going to come through. That's what these kings do. No, it was because the Lord who called us three kings together just so he could hand us over to Moab. The passage goes on and says this. Elisha said, as surely as the Lord Almighty lives, whom I serve. Notice who, who, who serves him? Whom I serve, not whom you serve, not whom we serve, very personal pronoun there, whom I serve, if I did not have respect for the presence of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, I would not look at you or even notice you. Tough words. He goes on and tells them, next, now bring me a harpist. That makes perfect sense, right? Here we are on the way to war, three kings together with their armies, I'm sure somebody packed a harp. Because that's what you take into war. Right? Now bring me a harpist. And and a harp is not an easy instrument to tote around. If you've ever seen one live and in person, seen a couple, they're pretty large things. And it takes some skill to do it. And so here is Elisha with these kings in crisis And his answer is, I want you to get the largest, most difficult-to-move instrument possible out here in the middle of the desert. I need some mood music. And so what happens, you ask? While the harpist was playing, the hand of the Lord came upon Elisha. Now, that's interesting. We could camp out there for a few minutes. Have you ever in your life had a song prompt something of the Lord speaking to you. Probably most of us have had that. We've been listening to a worship song. We've been listening to a Christian album. And something in there connected with us. Something of the word. Something of, uh, there's something about the way music can disarm our defenses, can penetrate us differently than, than just a conversation. One of the ways I know that is because a lot of If I were to to throw out some lyrics today, a lot of you would know the lyrics to some songs that you shouldn't be listening to. So the good news is I'm not going to quiz you. No, I'm just kidding. I would know them too. I mean, I've said this before. I know this is a big shock to everybody, but growing up, one of my favorite artists was Prince, that godly artist. No, not. I know. I saw like three people roll their eyes right there. At least you didn't leave. Like I said, we all have the same story. We all have sin, and Jesus comes in and cleans up the mess. And that was part of the mess of my, my life. That was somebody I liked. Shouldn't li- I could, the lyrics to his songs, shouldn't know them. But because I kind of like the music, I let down my defenses enough, and some of the words kind of get in and stick. And I think on the positive side, the same thing can happen when we allow 
godly music, godly lyrics to penetrate worship music and the, and the like. And, and it kind of gets in our head and this we'll remember those things differently. In fact, a lot of the scriptures I learned growing up, I remember them because they were songs I learned as a kid. And when I say them, I still say them to the beat of the song that I learned them, which makes it kind of odd sometimes. I try to do that in public. But nonetheless, that's how it works. And so when the harpist is playing, the word of the Lord came upon Elijah. And what do you imagine would be the instruction from God to Elisha to give to these kings that are in a valley, in a desert with no water, seven days, all these animals, all these soldiers about to die. What do you need to do? Next verse tells us, and he said, this is what the Lord says, make this valley full of ditches. Really? You want us to dig ditches? We're hot. We're tired. We're on the verge of dehydration. We desperately need water. And God's answer to us is, dig a ditch. Are you encouraged today? Hey, listen. I've had those times in my life where what I desperately need is for God to answer in a very specific way. And if you're like me and like these kings, you've already got figured out what God needs to do. They called Elisha, because he was the apprentice of Elijah, the rainmaker, because they needed rain. If God's going to send water out here in a desert, what's the most likely way to do it? It should rain. We need us some rain. I've been in my life situations where I think, okay, God, here's the situation. This is what you should do. Amen. And just like Elisha gave the word to these guys, sometimes the word and the activity of God comes back to me isn't what I wanted to hear. Isn't the direct answer to the problem I had. No, he says, make this valley full of ditches. But that's not all he says. Notice what he says after that. He says this, for this is what the Lord says. You will see neither wind nor rain, the very thing they wanted. Yet this valley will be filled with water, and you, your cattle, and your animals will drink. So I want you to dig ditches, but I'm still going to give you exactly what you need. He goes on in the next verse, I think, and says this. This is an easy thing in the eyes of the Lord. He will also hand Moab over to you. Oh, by the way, the thing that's really at issue here, this, this battle that you've gotten into, the one that you're convinced God brought us out here to die, he'll also fix that problem for you. I love what the prophet says. This is an easy thing in the eyes of the Lord. It's, it's easy. As if there's anything about their request that taxes God in any way. As if, even on the other hand, God needs them to dig a ditch to make water show up. See, God can bring water in all sorts of ways. In fact, only God can answer their need. Only God can fix the problem they have. Only God can provide the water that will nourish and, and, and provide for their particular thirst. But God still asks them to take a step of faith, to do something that in the logical way seems to move them away from the answer rather than toward it. Seems to move them 
to a place of greater desperation than to a place of relief. And a lot of times in our lives, God can take the greatest need that we have and turn it into a blessing if it's the thing that makes us seek Him more. God can take whatever it is, no matter how huge it is, and somehow make that a positive, somehow make that a blessing if the result, part of the result is we seek Him more. I don't understand how it works, but I know that verse that a lot of us quote, Romans 8, 28, for God works all things for good for those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. And so here He says, I want you to dig a ditch. I want you to do something. I want you to take an action that maybe doesn't make sense, maybe doesn't add up, but ultimately will be the path to allow me to work. And, and if we look through Scripture, there are lots of places where God asks us to respond to Him. In fact, James, the brother of Jesus, wrote a, an entire book of the New Testament. And probably the part in history that's garnered the most attention is this tension that there exists that he talks about, the tension between faith, believing, trusting God, and works. And he says, actually, in James chapter 2, a couple of verses, I think verse uh, 18 and then verse 26, he says this, Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith, how? By what I do. And in verse 26, he says this, As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. One of the ways that we demonstrate faith is by acting as if what God said, what God promised, is actually true. That's a way to demonstrate faith. Too often, we give lip service to believing in God, but when it comes to that moment where we're required to do anything or to risk anything, we kind of want to take a step back and say, well, God, you go ahead and fix this first, and then I'll take that step forward. You go ahead and solve this problem first, God, and then I'll believe you. But more often than not, we see God working in a different way where he invites us to demonstrate our faith by acting. One of the refrains that follows Jesus in his ministry is this, and when he saw their faith, an interesting phrase, how do you see faith? How do you observe something that by most of our way of thinking is intangible? is internal. Well, we can see a few of the examples. One of the places that happens, Jesus is in a house teaching, and it's full, and there's a group of people that have a friend who needs to be healed, and they figure if we can just get our friend to Jesus, he'll heal them. But they can't get near him. He's in a house. He's, it's a crowded place. So what do they do? They climb up on the roof, cut a hole in the roof, and the homeowner is thrilled lower their friend down. And the, the Bible says when Jesus saw their faith, he acted and that paralyzed man was healed. Another time, it's another crowd. Jesus is walking and the streets are lined. And as he's walking, it talks about a woman with an issue of blood who reaches out just to touch his garment. And the parade stops, the procession stops, and Jesus wants to know who touched me, which is an easy question. There's thousands of people there. All of them want to get near him. Who touched me? What kind of question is that? And he identifies this woman, and as Jesus saw her faith, it says, he responded to her. She'd been made well. 
Another time he comes upon a blind man. He came upon a lot of blind people, it seems like. He healed a lot of blind people. This one is, uh, for any germaphobe, the most disturbing. Because to heal this blind man, it says he spits to make mud and puts it on the man's eyes. But that's what he did. And I guess the next step was what? Now go wash in the pool of Siloam. Very specific. Very particular. Don't just go clean it up, because that would be all of our first responses, right? No, go wash in a particular place, and you will be healed. And the blind man gets up and goes to the pool and washes the mud off, and he's healed. You can see. Throughout Scripture, there are places where even Jesus, who had the ability to speak, and it is done, often waited for something of the demonstration of faith, of trust in him for the miracle. That was kind of the catalyst for the miracle to take place. For Elijah, he says to these three kings, I know you're tired, I know you're thirsty, but what you need to do is dig a ditch. God can send the water, and only God can send water. But your job right now is to dig some ditches, to demonstrate your faith in God so that he in turn can show his faithfulness. There's a lot of places in Scripture for us today that we can camp out on and claim there. It's it's if-then statements. If we do this, then God will do this. And one of those that you hear a lot, particularly in the state of our world, is 2 Chronicles 7.14, which I'm sure many of you have memorized. If you haven't memorized, say it with me. If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways. Then will I hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and heal their land. Who thinks our land needs to be healed? Absolutely. You know how that's going to happen? What does that verse tell us? I'm not one that... I, I like politics... I don't often preach politics. I don't think I ever preach politics. I try not to. I can get riled up about some stuff I see in the news really easy, and rightfully so. But that verse tells me if I want to see the end result, God, hear from heaven, forgive our sin, our being the church of Jesus Christ, by the way, and heal our land, then my job as one of God's people is to do what? Watch Fox News and sign petitions and vote for concern. No, none of that. What does it say? If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their sin, then By the way, I do all those other things, too, but that's another story. The hope of the healing of our land, in my opinion, and I think pretty good opinion, lies in Jesus Christ. And his kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And so us, as we as God's people, we need to be willing to dig the ditch that is humbling ourselves 
and admitting our sin and turning from it. And all the other things that it says in that verse. See, we demonstrate our faith so that then in turn God can show his faithfulness. And here's what I love. The Bible says he is faithful even when I'm faithless because he cannot disown himself. That's good news. Excellent news. But we have a responsibility. We have often in Scripture been told, this is what I need you to do. This is the ditch I need you to dig, and I'll send the water. Just like you told these kings. And they got busy digging some ditches. You know you know what's not fun about digging ditches? Everything. Just about everything. I don't. I can't think of anything right now that I think, boy, I really want to go dig a ditch because that sounds like fun. Digging ditches is, is hard work. Digging ditches, I know we have some professionals that have machines that dig ditches for them. Why? Because a pick down here, you're not digging in dirt. I don't know what that is. It's hard. Digging ditches is hard work. It's and it's slow work. When when these three armies led by these kings get together and have to dig ditches, they took shovel on dirt, one scoop at a time. And it took a while. And it wasn't easy. But they knew that God had promised something. You know, for us, as God's people, has God promised us some stuff? Has God promised us some huge stuff? Has God promised us some stuff that's the equivalent of a parched army needing a drink of water? You might feel pretty parched here today. There might be stuff in your life that you are dry, that that you feel like you're at the end of, of your ability to deal with whatever it is that you're dealing with. And I think God's encouragement to us is just to take that next step of faith. To put that shovel in that dirt one scoop at a time and wait for his deliverance. Wait for his answer. To do the thing that shows, yes, God, I don't understand how this is going to turn out. I don't understand how this can be fixed. I don't understand what's next, but God, I believe you. I trust you. And you told me to dig this ditch, and so I'm going to dig this ditch one small scoop The Old Testament prophet, Zechariah, chapter 4, verse 10, says this, Do not despise small beginnings, for the Lord rejoices to see the work begin. Don't despise just the first seemingly inconsequential step. Don't say, God, I need more than just shovel full of dirt to fix my issues, to answer this request, to change my circumstance. Don't despise that. No, if God asks you to take that step of faith to dig that ditch, then put shovel to dirt and keep moving that direction. We know. One of my favorite verses is Ephesians 3, 20 and 21. I should have it memorized, but I don't, so I'm going to have to read it to you. It says this, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to His power that is at work within us. 
To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. And then just parenthesis, Paul writes, Amen. That's good stuff. You mean God is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine? According to his power that is at work where? Within us, his people, his church. God is able. And part of our demonstration of our faith in a God who is able is just that first scoop of dirt and that second scoop of dirt and that ditch that slowly begins to form in front of us as we faithfully take the next step. What happens? 2 Kings chapter 3, verse 20 tells us the end result, the next morning, by no coincidence, about the time of the offering of the sacrifice. God's timing is, is amazing in Scripture, and, and really in life. I, I love that because it tells us this wasn't something that was sort of accidental. This was God's purpose. As His people did what He told them to do, at just the time you would expect God to show up, He shows up. Why did they offer a sacrifice? Why would they get together and, and offer this incredible list of sacrifices for high holy days or daily things? Because they knew that they had issues. They had sin in their life, and God had prescribed a way to deal with sin. They knew that these sacrifices were ways to, to give thanks to a God who gave them more than they deserved. The, the sacrificial system of Israel had bound up in it so much meaning that it's no accident that right about the time they would be getting ready to do the thing that God had told them to do as the time of the sacrifice came. There it was. Water flowing from the direction of Edom. And the land was filled with water. And I can just hear the collective as they took that first cool drink, as they led their animals to the ditches they had dug the day before, thinking, this is ridiculous. Has the king gone nuts? Why do we listen to these crazy prophets, these bald-headed, godly men that wander around, sicking bears on innocent kids? You know, could you hear the muttering around the ditches? that turned the next day to praise when God demonstrated His incredible faithfulness. See, that's what we started with was, it's in, without faith, it's impossible to please God. Why do we need to look at Elisha? Because he was a man who had some incredible faith. He's a man who had big faith, who believed God for big things. As I said last week, worked more miracles in Scripture than anybody but Jesus. Did some, I mean, spoke to water that was poisoned, put some salt water in it, and suddenly you can drink it. It was causing uh, miscarriages and death to livestock, and he does that. And he, says, he parts the Jordan River. He, well, we covered the bear thing, didn't we, the baldy thing. And we could just camp out on that for an hour. Here he does this. He says, dig ditches, and miraculously, in response to that, water comes. Elisha, he lived a life of faith. He lived a life that pleased God by the way he acted. And we can learn from that. What I, I'm grateful for is that when we talk about having faith in God and we talk about believing God and having big faith, is that we, in many ways, from this side of the New Testament, from this side of the life and ministry and death and resurrection of Jesus, have some pretty strong footing to base on. Because what we see in Scripture is the faithfulness of God demonstrated so incredibly huge. 
And even the very kind of faithfulness that I'm talking about today, God desires of us. Because Scripture says about Christ, it was while we were yet sinners that Christ died for us. He he dug the ditch, so to speak, when he willingly went to the cross. No one took his life from it. He he willingly laid it down. And, And at that point, Scripture tells us, No guarantees. While we were still sinners, he did it anyway. And by his death and by his resurrection, he opened the way that we who place our faith in him have access to a God who is able to do immeasurably more than we ask or can imagine according to the power that is at work within us and in his people. And so today we come to what we call the Lord's Supper. These elements of bread and juice that symbolize what Jesus has done for us. That by taking them, we, the Bible says, proclaim his death until he comes again. We camp out on that moment where Jesus, not because he owed us anything, not because there was anything in us that was deserving, but rather demonstrating his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, he died on the cross. And today as we take these elements I want it to be a reminder to us of the incredible faithfulness of God. The faithfulness of a God who may ask us as his people to do some things that just don't make sense. But who's already demonstrated that he can be trusted. That he can work miracles. And that he loves you more than you realize.